Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. In the first full day of the winter of 2020, you know, I find myself grasping for just sort of positive things to hold on to this particular year. So I can I, can I just mention what the highlight of my day was yesterday? I mean, this is kind of inside baseball, but I mean, it was kind of a it's kind of a thing for, you know, for me. I I of course, besides doing the bulwark, uh, I'm a contributor to uh, MSNBC, which is its own strange trip uh, in and of its uh, in and of itself. And uh, you may have heard about this, but Leslie Jones, the former cast member of SNL, started to do this sort of online, on-air uh, riff on people who show up on TV. And so she will, it's kind of like Roomerator. I don't know, again, this is kind of insider stuff here, that if you, that if you do these cable hits, there's a uh, there's a Twitter handle called Room Raider that says, you know, how they like your room and, you know, eight out of 10, nine out of 10, 10 out of 10. And uh, well, Leslie Jones has started doing this, but a little bit with a little bit of an edge. And last night it was my turn. There I am sitting in my kitchen in front of my fireplace. And this is Leslie Jones's riff while I'm talking. What in the story time book shit is this here? <laughs> that fireplace, homie. Did he come out the fireplace, though? That's what I'm trying to figure out. I like the pine cones. You know, not many people like pine cones. But I lived by woods that had a whole bunch of pine cones. And always used to make projects out of pine cones during the Christmas time. So I like a good pine cone. But uh, it just, it, it seemed very funny how he placed himself in front of that fireplace like that. That's great. It's Okay, for the record, I did not come out of the fireplace, but if any of you want a story, um, we, we could probably arrange that. Um, it might involve dogs and and, and reindeer. Uh, so our uh, special guest today is one of our contributors, Robert Trasinski, a longtime conservative commentator. Welcome back on the podcast, Robert. Hi, thanks for having me on, Charlie. Okay, before before we get to that, though, can I just make a little pitch for, for Bulwark Plus? This podcast is free and it's going to remain free. But uh, we also have Bulwark Plus, and it, it's it's membership. And if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you have access to a suite of other podcasts, which are very, very cool, um, as well as our daily newsletters. And I was thinking about that this morning because I get up about five in the morning and I start writing the newsletter, trying to, you know, you know, my take on the day uh, to, you know, point out things that I think are, are salient in a, in a time when it's very, very hard to keep up with the with the with the news cycle and and, and my and, and my newsletter today is the Mad King's Endgame. Every day brings a uh, a, uh, a a new humiliation, and it, I was thinking about it when I was lying in bed last night. To give you a sense of how badly my life sucks, and, and and two things hit me that right now, and I want to talk to you about this, Robert. Uh, two things hit me. Number one, there is now a non-zero chance that Donald Trump will refuse to leave the White House on January 20th. I'm not saying it's possible. I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm not saying it's probable. I'm saying it's possible because Trump has gone full mad king and he's raging against his enemies. He's turning against anyone, you know, against all of his closest, uh, you know, folks. Um, and he's, you know, talking about military-like coups. Okay, so that's that's number one. But I'll, But the flip side is, this guy is losing big time. His world is imploding around him and his presidency is going to end in close to the worst possible, if not the most you know, worst possible way. It will end in disgrace. You can see the insiders edging toward the door. And what's really striking about it is I, I know that we can you know, get really you know, upset about watching the, the way he's attacking our democratic norms. But from his point of view, I mean, the Mad King is experiencing a new humiliation every single day. So if you subscribe to my newsletter, you got my kind of my rundown on it. And maybe it's a little bit of an antidote to um, gnawing coup dread because, I mean, look, there's no longer the remotest possibility that any court in the country is going to overturn the votes of any state. Not a single state legislature is going to vote to disenfranchise its state's voters. The military is not going to obey any order to impose martial law. And there is zero chance that Congress will actually overturn the Electoral College on January 6th. And on almost a daily basis, he has one of his loyalists turn on him, whether it's 
Bill Barr or Pat Robertson or Mitch McConnell or Vladimir Putin. I mean, it's like, wow. So um, please consider uh, you know, subscribing to Bulwark Plus because we really try to add some value to it. And you know, as I was trying to do the math here, um, I think a Bulwark Plus membership is uh, something like $10 a month. And for that, you get more than 20 newsletters. So it was like 50 cents a newsletter. And so I was thinking about that and saying, am I going to give people 50 cents worth of value this morning? And I, and, and I think so. So Robert Trusinski, should, should we talk about the degree of alarmism and how alarmed we should be as the, as the Mad King sits in the White House lashing out at everybody? Because it, it, it feels, well, I mean, it, it, it feels very sort of, you know, last days for this guy and he's surrounded by the worst crackpots and everybody else is headed for the exits. Do you, do you, do you have the same take on that or do you have a different take? No, absolutely. Um, well, I have a somewhat different take, but on, I agree with you that at this moment, he does have that sort of sad and pathetic vibe to him. I mean, uh, one of my little, so as a, as an Ayn Rand guy, as a, as an objectivist, as you know, someone who's, who's in favor of her philosophy, one of my bugbears is uh, the misuse of the word selfish, right? Because she defended the virtue of selfishness, the idea of rational self-interest. So I heard somebody talk about Trump as being selfish by refusing to concede in the election. And I thought, well, what's really self-interested? Why is it, how is it in his interest to, to reenact the same humiliation over and over again every day, right? Yeah, yeah this I, is not I, in his self-interest. That's it, a good point. Yeah, instead of losing the election once, he's going to lose it seventy-five different. I don't know how many days there are in between, but he's going to lose it like ninety different times uh, in between election day and, and inauguration day. No, that's uh, that's true. And you know, I mean, we already have. I think it was a Fox News poll said that forty-two percent of Americans think that he will be remembered as the worst president in American history. And this this last thirty days is not going to help his reputation. <laughs> no, it, it certainly isn't. Uh, he, he loses the last chance he has to sort of leave in a dignified way. However, so I, I, that's part of the perspective. And I'm, I'm generally an optimist and think things are going to turn out better than we fear. However, where I want to get alarmed, though, is that I think it's not about this election. It's not about yeah. overturning this election result. It's about the next election. Because what I'm concerned that he's doing is he, by digging in for you know, two and a half solid months digging in and, and demanding. It's not just that he doesn't want to acknowledge the election result. It's that he's demanding everybody else come out and, you know, swear their loath of loyalty to him. Loyalty to him. He's going to probably push it to the point where there's this January 6th vote where the, the House has to vote to accept the election results. And he's probably going to get a bunch of people to throw a, a wrench into that. And it's not going to work because, you know, they can say, oh, we challenge it. And there's going to be a vote where they challenge it. And then, you know, the House will vote in the Senate and, and there's a Democratic majority and enough Republicans who will peel off. So he's going to, you know, Trump is going to lose again for the 90th time. Uh, so it's, it's probably not overwhelmingly in the Senate. I mean, it's oh, yeah. uh, I mean, the worst case scenario from my point of view would be that he would only get like 70 votes against him. It, yeah. could, it could be it could be like the the vote last night. It could be like 91 to seven. Well, and that's that's say the concern here is that what he's doing is by making everybody go on the record and then using the pressure of his fanatical base, because that's the thing he's had all along is he's had the fanatical base. And, and anybody who's in the media business knows what these sort of flying monkeys look like. Right. And that there are certain people who have the flying monkeys and certain mm -hmm. people who don't. Right. Uh, Mitt Romney, you criticize Mitt Romney and people didn't show swarming up around you saying, how do you dare possibly criticize Mitt Romney? Everybody no, understood the, why you criticize The Mormons him. were very polite about it. <laughs> yes, they are. Uh, and, they, and They would make you cookies and want to sit down and talk to you about a, the misunderstanding. <laughs> Trump, it's the full, full flying monkeys flinging feces in your face. Right. It, it, well, and, and there, there are certain people who have that, like Ron Paul, you know, there's always this mm -hmm. like, trade-off media is like if I mention Ron Paul and criticize Ron Paul, you know, I make the point I want to make, but on the other hand, is it worth it for what's going to happen, you know, on my Twitter mentions for the next, for the next three days? Uh, so uh, it, because he has those sort of flying monkeys and that terrifies politicians. And so what he's trying to do is by summoning them for, you know, the whole period of the interregnum, for the whole period from the election to the, uh, to the, to the inauguration, 
he every day he's got them out there pressuring Republican politicians to come out and say this election was rigged, it was fraudulent, and Donald Trump is the real winner, and we're going to challenge it. And if you don't say that, then you get you get a lot of pressure put on you. And so my concern is what happens if, and I think I don't think that's going to end in inauguration day. I think he's going to continue that. And that's his strategy to run again in, in four years. Well, but but see, going back to your what's in his self-interest, because as he turns on everyone, as he becomes more isolated and crazy, I think he's reducing the chances that that's going to be successful as well. I mean, we're seeing now he's turning on, he's mad at Pence, he's mad at his chief of staff, he's ripping his White House counsel, Pat Cipollone. You know, he, he threw, you know, Bill Barr under the bus last mm-hmm. week, uh, Secretary of Pompeo. Uh, and last night he's lashing out at Mick, Mitch McConnell. Um, well, so, well, there you are being an optimist, but I see that. I'm up. I may be fighting the last war, but I'm sort of conditioned by what happened in 2015, 2016, where a lot of us thought, well, the Trump guy is the flash in the pan. It's not going to happen. There's no way he's going to win. It's a celebrity stunt. And then, you know, we were not alarmed enough. And I'm overcompensating now by being by being uh, perhaps too alarmed. Okay, I understand what you're saying. We, we've said this so many times before, but right now, I mean, Trump is simply too crazy for the crazy. I mean, he's demanding too much loyalty, you know, except for the most deranged and the corrupt. I mean, that thing with Bill Barr yesterday was amazing. I mean, think about we're talking about Bill Barr, who's supposed to be right. his Roy Cohn. He comes out and, he, you know, the, the bus that he was thrown under, he throws the whole bus back right on top of, of Donald Trump. I mean, he says, I'm not going to appoint a special counsel to investigate election fraud. I'm not going to appoint a special counsel looking to Hunter Biden. No basis to sees voting machines. Um, looks like it's the Russians behind this massive hack. I mean, this was as complete a, a an FU to Donald Trump as Bill Barr could have delivered. He understood that those were heat-seeking missiles into the things that that uh, Trump is obsessed about. So I kind of wonder, what's the break, what was the breaking point for somebody like Bill Barr? And all of these other guys, you can see, are looking around and going, we got to get out of here. So, so there is a, if there's a breaking point for Bill Barr, there's a breaking point for everybody. And then, and then, okay. So since we're reliving our trauma of 20 of, of 2015, 2016, there was also the indication that God has told Pat Robertson, never mind. <laughs> remember Pat Robertson, America's evangelist? Oh, I remember very well. He, he told his audience that God had told him that Trump would be reelected. Did you hear what he said yesterday? I did not. Let's let, let let us, Mr. Trusinski, let us luxuriate in the new Pat Robertson analysis of where we are at now. I think it's all over. I think the Electoral College has spoken. I think the the Biden uh, corruption uh, has not totally been brought to to uh, a fruition, but it doesn't seem to be affecting the Electoral College. Nope. And I don't think the Supreme Court is going to move in to do anything. And I think uh, we're going to see a President Biden. And I also think we'll be seeing a President Kamala Harris not too long after the inauguration of President Biden. With all his talent and the ability to raise money and draw large crowds, the president still lives in an alternate reality. He really does. People say, well, he lies about this, that, and the other. But no, he isn't lying. To him, that's the truth. He had the biggest crowd on Inauguration Day. He had the, he had more people than ever. Uh, he was the most popular uh, people. Uh, he saved NBC, but with The Apprentice. You know, you go down the line of things that really aren't true. And, you know, people kept pointing to them. But because they loved him so much and he was so strong for the evangelicals, the evangelicals were with him all the way. But there was something about him that was good, that God placed him in that office for the time. He's done a marvelous job for the economy. But at the same time, uh, he is very erratic and he uh, he's fired people and he's fought people and he's insulted people and keeps going down the line. So it's it's a mixed bag. And I think it it would be well to say uh, you've had your day and uh, it's time to move on. Whoa. Okay. When you're too reality based for Pat Robinson, that's (laughs) it. 
Now, see, Pat Roberts has got to be, what, about 120 years old, but he's been paying attention. This is the interesting thing. He's noticed all this stuff, you know, and he goes, OK, he's not lying. The guy actually lives in an alternative reality. OK, when when Pat Robertson says you are living in an alternative reality. Right. Wow. So yeah, I think it's a great point, actually, though, about Trump not lying, because I always think when I hear Trump, I always think of the great line from Seinfeld where um, uh, George Costanza is giving advice to Jerry on how to lie. And he says, remember. It's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> I know that that that's important. So I want to just go back to something you said because I, I think it's important for listeners to understand this. And uh, I saw that you retweeted Josh Barrow, who said the Republicans uh, really want to avoid a vote on January sixth, up or down on the Electoral College, because that's a nightmare vote because they would have to they essentially have to choose between um, you know up, upholding the Constitution and bringing on the flying monkeys. I mean, that's why they dread it, because it shouldn't be a courageous vote, right? It shouldn't be a no. nightmare vote to do what every United States senator in the history of the country basically has done, which is to acknowledge that if the if you win the Electoral College, you become president of the United States. I mean, until right now, well, that you know, had never been a difficult vote. And I was going to say that, what about the Confederates? But they, they acknowledged that Lincoln won. They just said, well, they then we the Union, right? They were cucks compared to these guys. <laughs> oh, that's a great point. 1861. You know, they, they they waited until after they had, you know, voted, you know, counted the, the Electoral College votes for Abraham Lincoln before they seceded. Right. So so this is this is a nightmare vote because of the the flying monkey. So you, you what does Mike Pence do? I mean, this guy talk about being screwed. Axios has this great report where, you know, Trump thinks everybody around him is weak, stupid, or disloyal, that apparently the standard is that if you're not in favor of demanding that the legislatures overturn the Electoral College and seizing the voting machines, that, that you're a complete cuck. But uh, Pence's role in January 6th is looming large in Trump's mind. And of course, as vice president, he presides over the the uh, the mm -hmm. joint session of Congress. And according to Axios, Trump would view Pence performing his constitutional duty, doing what he's supposed to do, Validating the election result, Trump would regard that as the ultimate betrayal. Pence is totally screwed here, isn't he? Oh, he is. He is. Because he's he's in too deep on supporting Trump uh, to ever sort of shake, to ever get that stink off of him. But at the same time, he also, I think, I don't know, I don't know Pence that well. And, and maybe and he has surprised me as being, I thought he was much more of a conventional, safe politician. But I also think he's not the kind of guy who's then going to want to go down in the history books as the guy who disrupted the, the recognition of the Electoral College. So I think he is I don't think he's going to do what Trump wants him to do. And so he's going to be, you know, the big villain for the Trump people. At the same time, he's never going to get rid of the stink of having supported and, and been a, a loyal supporter of Trump up to now. Yeah, I think I, I think I think you're right. There there's there comes a point at which and I, th I think we've seen this again and again, that that when it's just a cheap tweet or a press conference or showing up at a Charlie Kirk conference, people can, can you know, strut their stuff. But when you have to when you have to have skin in the game legally, Republicans have done the right thing. Right. I mean, they've, they've signed the certifications. And so just like they did in Georgia or the governor of Arizona did or the officials in, in Michigan, um, that they're not going to violate the law. Yeah. Mike Pence does not want the image of himself presiding over overturning an election to be his legacy because that's what it would be. On the other hand, you know that he's excommunicated if he does it, if he does the right thing. So that that's how that's how that is how utterly screwed up the Republican Party is that people who do the bare minimum of their constitutional duty are now, you know, castigated. Well, that's that's see, that's why I have a more pessimistic take right now, uh, you know, partly because it's my my reflex from from four years ago. But also because I'm, I really have a question of how does the Republican Party come back from this? How do you have this period, this long period? I don't think it's over yet. I think Trump's going to continue to do this from out of office for as long as he, for as long as he can wield that influence. I, we, we can. The question is how okay. long will that be? But how does the Republican Party bounce back from something like that? It, it's such a, a massively corrupting event that I think you know it's it's, it's ten years of darkness is your punishment for it. Well, except they haven't been punished for it so far. I mean, they're sitting there going, 
you know, we put up with four years of this absolute dysfunctional presidency and um, we're, we're poised to win control of the House. We still control the United States Senate. Uh, things are good. We didn't lose any state legislatures. We're going to be able to control gerrymandering again. Uh, so and, and and looking forward, they don't need to be a majority party. They don't need to convince um, voters. They can still lose national elections by five, six million votes to win the Electoral College. So I'm guessing Republicans... You know, they don't feel there's even a need to have an autopsy, right? Because everything's great. Yeah, actually, I, I noted that uh, it's the Democrats who have announced they're having an autopsy <laughs> of the election. You know, that the postmortem, I think they called it, uh, where because, you know, they they had the most on one of the most unpopular uh, Republican presidents in, in a long time. And they couldn't gain uh, seats. You know, they, they lost seats in the House. They couldn't gain back the Senate. Uh, if you have those, I mean, consider, look at the, look at the majority they had when Barack Obama got elected, right? I know. Yeah. They had a huge game, majority, had a filibuster proof majority in the Senate. Uh, and now they've, they can't get a majority in the Senate. Yeah. I think it's the, it's, I think this is the punishment for the Democrats for being, um, for, for the Black Lives Matter thing and for basically being the party of the extreme left and the party of chaos and for not standing up to their nutcases. I mean, that's that's the thing we got. To but they at. did stand up to their nutcases. I mean, you could argue that, of course, they're not the, the, the party of the far left. They're the party of Joe Biden. And Joe Biden was very forceful in standing up against the street violence. Well, I, I think he was. But the thing is that down the ballot and, you know, the I think they were in many ways tolerant of and, and, and not just the Democratic politicians, but also sort of the left of center media. They made, they spent a lot of time making excuses for riots, and you remember all the stuff of uh, mostly peaceful protests, mostly peaceful. Yeah. or what is it? Uh, rioting breaks out as uh, uh, violence breaks out as a mostly as a peaceful protest intensifies. <laughs> I do, I do think that see, this is something that people on progressives, I do think, need to step back and say, do you understand how you sound sometimes, you know, in your own head, you think you're saying X, but this is the way it plays in the parts of the country that will determine things like who controls Congress and who controls the presidency. And this was something that I tried to emphasize over and over again <laughs> during the election, and they were able to pull it out. But I still think that there are folks that, you know, don't, you know, who will, you know, I, I will get lots of emails from people explaining that, you know, no defund the place really is a good idea. Um, what defund the place really means is, and my point is, look, if you're explaining it in <laughs> rural North Carolina, you're losing the election. This is, this is how you will lose all of this. And so anyway. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm in Virginia seventh district. This is a rural district. Oh. Part of the, part of the suburbs of Richmond and then uh, out and out here in the boondocks. Uh, uh, Who, who's your congressman? Bamberger. Okay, she's, go ahead. She's yeah. a Democrat. It's interesting. So um, this was the district that existed. It was created to reelect Eric Cantor forever, right? Mm -hmm. He was going to be congressman from the seventh district to the end of time. We had the Tea Party Rebellion and we got this libertarian guy, uh, um, Dave Bratt. Yeah, I mean, he was Dave my congressman Bratt. and I liked him and yeah. I can't remember his name all of a sudden. Uh, Sick Transit Gloria Mundi. Um, well, this is the fate of all these people. Just, uh, but, just, just mentioning, you know, going Dave yeah, Brad. Yeah. In the 2018, when there was this backlash, especially in the suburbs, and we got enough of the suburbs, south suburbs of Richmond, for this to to sway our district, there was this backlash against the the, the Republicans. And Spamberger, a moderate Democrat, an actual real, honestly, just moderate Democrat, got elected here in this district that was basically created to to elect Republicans until the end of time. And that was a real sort of indication. And she, she, but she very, very, very narrowly won re-election this time. And uh, she went on this conference call, and it kind of makes me like her, even though I didn't vote for her. She went on this conference call uh, with Demo with the Congressional Democratic Caucus after the election, and starts shouting at them about how never use the word socialism ever again, and knock it off this defund the police. I almost lost my election re-election because of defund the police. Yeah, so it has an impact. Yeah. It has an impact in places that are where the police are not going to be defunded. Right. <laughs> it has an impact in places where these policies are not actually going to be implemented, but where they serve as an effective bogeyman of look what these horrible Democrats want to do.
Well, let's go back to where the Republicans are right now. And I think you've already answered one of the questions that I was hoping to address, which was I keep getting asked the questions. Well, you know, why are Republicans not standing up against this? Where was the the, uh, you know, pushback among elected Republican officials after the reports that Donald Trump is meeting in the Oval Office and discussing the possibility of military coups? And my answer is they're just waiting the guy out at at this point. They're keeping their head down. They're They're just waiting for it to be over. Um, and, and, and I think that's because they just don't want to unleash the flying monkeys. But to your point about what happens to the Republican Party going forward, you know, you look at some of the people coming on board who are going to be very high profile. You know, the Democrats had, you know, the the squ- the the squad. Think about some of these new freshman Republicans. And I know we're going to do more on the bulwark about them. But, you know, Madison Cawthorn, um, mm-hmm. what's her name? Green, the, the QAnon uh, congresswoman, uh, con- another QAnon, um, you know, adjacent congresswoman from 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 Colorado. Um, this new guy that beat uh, Denver Riggle. I mean, you, you have, you know, people who make Matt Gates look like Cicero. <laughs> in comparison, you have Tommy Tuberville going to be coming in, sitting next to Marsha Blackburn. And I mean, it's there there's there's the the Trumpification of the Republican Party, you know, is, is starting to take roots. I mean, you're 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 seeing what's happening to the Republican Party in Texas run by Alan West talking about secession or Kelly Ward, who's the chairman of the Republican Party in Arizona, who is just completely out of her mind. So I mean, there is a dangerous traje- trajectory. but I want to get your take on this. You take Donald Trump out of this. He's no longer the president. He leaves in disgrace. Don't you think there there is room for at least some quasi the residual sane elements of the party to make a little bit of noise? Oh, I, I think there's definitely room for it. The The problem is so this goes to I've been doing sort of an end of year review. I do this every year where I go over everything I've written in my own newsletter, uh, a little plug in there, TrzynskiLetter.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my own newsletter that I, that I do, I do a lot of coverage, a lot of different things. In the, I do things for the bulwark, but this is, uh, I do a lot of other things there. And uh, I do an end of year review. And the thing that struck me, because it's something that I hadn't really noticed until I got it, I'll put it all together, is I'm concerned there's a kind of a de-alignment going on. Uh, in the hmm. in the, on, I would say in the Republic, Republican Party, but more broadly in in what we call the political right, and by de- what I mean by alignment, yeah, we have, so we, there are these big political alignments we have, you know. So if we were a, a European parliamentary democracy where it's possible for small parties right to to survive, you know, we would have like six different political parties, and our all politics our politics would be these alignments would be much more visible because it would be alliances between all these little fragment, you know, minor minority parties, fragmentary parties who align together to do things as coalitions in the government. Uh, But because we have a system we have, which really sort of encourages herds everybody into these two major parties, what we have is each major party represents a kind of ideological alignment or ideological coalition. And the traditional ideological coalition of the right and of the Republican Party has been the hawks, the free marketers, and the religious uh, conservatives, mm-hmm. you know, the religious traditionalists. And the Trump era, I think, has sort of uh, is partly a product of and is pushing a de-alignment of that, that coalition. So that was, you know, that coalition was formed actually very deliberately back in the 50s. Uh, National Review championed this thing that was called fusionism. Mm-hmm. Right, the idea that those these three parties, these three factions, could all get along, and and by pursuing, by working together and pursuing our objectives, each was helping the other. And, and by the way, just because you're, you're you're right about this, it, but also that project recognized the fact that they that these factions had real fundamental differences. And before the National Review Fusionist Project, it did seem like that many of those differences were irreconcilable, right? You know, I mean, you know, the, how, how, how do you get the libertarians together with the social conservatives? How do you reconcile some of these different values? So to a certain extent, those real fundamental differences have been papered over for a very, very long time and are now reemerging. And, and right? I think the thing is, ideological coalitions like that last for so long that they become... Right. You know, they become regarded as just the way things are. Yeah. It's it's part of the landscape. Are you going to be a conservative or a liberal? Are you going to be a, a Republican or a Democrat? These 
these these ideological alignments seem natural, and they can also have weird distorting effects too. Because I was talking about you know the, the left paying the price for not standing up to its nutcases, and they did kind of stand up to the nutcases. But notice how political coalitions have a corrupting effect, because when you see somebody as being on your side, as being part of your coalition, you tend to be very muted and cautious and timid in your in your criticism of them. Because, you know, you, you don't want to be fighting with your own people because that makes you weak in fighting with the other coalition. So that's why you have a lot of Democrats who would sort of say timid, moderate, cautious criticism and distance themselves from the rioting, but weren't, didn't really want to anger the flying monkeys on their side, who are the people mm-hmm. who say, yes, looting is good. Uh, and so you, you they but have to- Rep- yeah, but why do Republicans not pay the same price for the Proud Boys and the militias and the guys that show up, you know, at the Michigan State Capitol with the, you know, AK-47s well, or whatever? You know, I think that the last election was an interesting one uh, because I think what happened is people split their ticket. Uh, and people made these differentiations where they they blamed it's like they blamed republic they blamed Democrats down the ticket for black for for the for the riots but they didn't blame Joe Biden mm-hmm. and they blamed Donald but on the other hand they blamed Donald Trump for all the rotten stuff he's done but they didn't really blame Republicans in Congress so it was a very oddly split decision that they made. It was an oddly split decision. So when you talk about the de-alignment, so, uh, but, but where do the different alignments go if, in fact, American politics is, is going to continue to be a binary choice? Well, so I think that what we have is a de-alignment where it's very clear that the, the, uh, the nationalist wing of the right, uh, which has sort of taken Trump as his figurehead, they are done with the libertarian wing with the mm-hmm. pro-free market wing, they want you know they want to basically say to hell to hell with those people. Let's get rid of them. We don't need them. They're they're hostile to what we stand for. And this is sort of Tucker Carlson thing. Talking you know Tucker Carlson getting on the TV talking about how uh, how much he likes Elizabeth Warren's program and how we should, you know the the right yeah. should embrace Elizabeth <laughs> Warren's program as the right economics, but you know combine it with uh, uh, social conservatism. Uh, so they're basically done having being in a coalition with the pro free marketers, and a lot of us are sort of, you know, returning the favor and not wanting to be in a coalition with them. So we have a dealignment, but we don't yet have a realignment, and that's the interesting question. Is that, uh, and it's one that I kind of want to explore, which is to what extent, because I think there's also the material for a dealignment on the the left of center side, because you've had all the stuff about cancel culture, and you've had a whole sort of people who, who remembered they're supposed to be liberals and that liberals are supposed to be for free speech. And so you had that whole side that's been in rebellion against the woke left. And so there's a question there. Uh, and we've seen this sort of temporary alliance of convenience of which the ball work sort of has, has featured some of that temporary alliance of convenience between the sort of liberal uh, or the, the pro freedom, right, or the, the center right and the center left. And I'm wondering to what extent that will potentially cause something of a realignment eventually, or whether that will sort of fade into the background as, you know, let's say Trump's, Trump fades from the scene and we go back to the status quo ante of, you know, 20th century fusionism. No, and all, I think all of that is up in the air. And, uh, you know, in, in, in part, that means that people are, are free to pursue some of their ideas to the extent that our politics are about ideas anymore. Yeah. Won't the right in some of this, uh, this de-alignment, won't that be healed by just going back into the default setting of being oppositional to whatever the Democrats do or, or a Biden administration does? I, I think to some extent that is all, all, the, all the factions will be reunited in being in being reactionary. Opposition is the uh, the health of the Republican Party in a way, right? In an odd way, because yes, I mean the Obama years were great years for the Republican Party because we could all agree we didn't like this guy, right? Uh, we could all agree that we, or at least we could all agree that we opposed his his policies, uh, whatever you thought of him personally. Yeah. And uh, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm looking. I was looking back too recently at some of my some of the things I wrote about uh, Barack Obama, and it's like you know. It, it, Next to Trump, you tend to get this sort of hazy recollection, uh, hazy golden glow uh, on the past of how much better it was. And I look back at some of the stuff that I was criticizing Obama for. I'm like, yeah, he was actually a pretty bad president. He did a lot of he did a lot of stuff I really didn't like uh, on foreign policy. He was very yeah. negligent. Uh, he he loved to govern by uh, uh, to try to govern by executive order. 
And, you know, nobody seems to have learned the lesson of how much trouble that can cause. Uh, See, I'm actually going in the opposite direction, realizing that a lot of the things that we said back then were so overheated, were sort of overwrought. And I agree with you, by the way, on the whole executive order thing. On the other hand, you know, once you had, you know, Mitch McConnell essentially saying that he's not going to, you know, cooperate in any way. Well, this is this is where water flows. And we're going to see this in every presidency, I think, at, at some at some point. Yeah. I do think that one of the things that that happened was that the right became so in love with its own rhetorical critiques of Obama that we weren't actually noticing that 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 that, that there was a Venn diagram that we could have agreed on on things. And so I, I was I've actually been reading Obama's book, believe it or not, and uh, realizing that okay, I, here's where we fundamentally disagree on certain things. But you know what? Um, under the circumstances. While we were screaming about socialism and death panels and everything, it, we, we were kind of not engaging in a, in a good faith debate. And I think that, you know, that's contributed to this sort of flight 93 election motif, uh, this, you know, that we have to burn it all down because the other side is so malign and they hate, you know, you know, th that rhetorical critique of Obama was so divorced from reality that it, it did morph into what we have now. Well, actually, at least that's where I'm at. I'm my my view is I think the people who got a really bad rap from the Obama years were the Republican establishment, because that looking back now, I realized that the biggest the biggest blow made for the cause of small government in the last decade was the sequester. Mm -hmm. you know, John John Boehner going in there and negotiating with Obama and being, you know negotiating very toughly with Obama, very strongly negotiated. Yeah. Uh, I use the proper Trumpian terms. Uh, and, uh, actually got the, the only time in, and I can recall in the last 20 years that, that federal spending has remained the same or, you know, has remained level or, or gone slightly down, uh, what an enormous accomplishment that seems like in, in retrospect, because it's the only time it's happened in the last, you know, in, in more than 20 years. But that, of course, assumes that the Republican Party or the Republican base actually cares about small government or cares about fiscal conservatism, because this is one of my great disillusionments, because I really did think there was at that moment. And what we've seen over the last four years is they just threw it under the bus. I, I have to say, watching my good friend, good friend, uh, former friend, Ron, Ron Johnson, you know, now saying he's really concerned about deficit spending after the last four <laughs> years is one of those irony is dead again. Yeah. So I do have trouble wrestling with what was the Tea Party all about, because it was clearly not about deficit reduction and paying down the debt and small government, was it? Well, actually, see, I defend the Tea Party a little bit, partly because I knew if the Tea Party morphs into Trumpism, I'm, I'm talking about the Tea Party as it exists now, as it, what it's morphed well, into. Well, that's the question, isn't it? Because I'm not sure the yeah. Tea Party morphed into Trumpism. I think it's not necessarily the same group of people. I think some of them, there's some overlap. Some of them are the same people, but a lot of them aren't. I, I view the Tea Party as sort of a rapprochement between the... Uh, other wings of, of, of conservatism and the pro-free marketers and the libertarians, sort of a conservative libertarian rapprochement that happened uh, for a brief period there for a couple of years. And that's why this is weird whipsaw that it went from being, you know, the, the Tea Party movement really was a movement where I, got, I personally benefited from this. So I think in retrospect, I realized part of the reason uh, you know, I got a boost from my career by being picked up at the Federalists in its early years when the Federalists was this fast growing uh, exciting new thing. I don't, let's not talk about what it has become. Since wow. Then. Yeah. No, no, but, we, yeah. we, all, we, we all, we all have a past, uh, Robert. <laughs> well, that was, was a moment for a couple of years there where it was this sort of, you know, a variety of different voices from different wings of the right. And, it, you know, before Trump came along and everything got to be realigned around a one person, there was this moment that the Federalists had. And then of course that got wrecked. But, um, I got a boost from my career because for that, and I, in retrospect, I realized I got picked up because I was considered, because it was 2014, and I was considered somebody who was sort of a, a Tea Party type of guy, and that was the ascendant wing of the movement, right? So, right, the moment where being somebody like that, who's, who's, I mean, you talked to me about being a, about me being a conservative commentator. I've never really called myself a conservative because I, I'm not religious. Uh, I'm a, I'm a secular free marketer. Right. So I'm more of the libertarian. I don't call myself a libertarian either because I'm too much of a hawk. So I'm I don't really fit it neatly into the categories. But the point is that I was on this more sort of pro free market, radical pro free market, libertarian ish end of things. 
And somebody like me could, you know, be picked up and, and, and have, there were a lot, it was a world of opportunities when that was considered to be the ascendant, the Tea Party was considered to be the ascendant, ascendant movement on the political right. So there's this weird sort of whipsaw, of course, that we got that right. six years later, you know, six, six, six or seven years after the rise of the Tea Party movement, everything would go so much in the other direction. But I think that's because the sort of rapprochement between conservatives and libertarians, that was what was torn apart. And the conserv- a, lot of, a bunch of the conservatives decided, no, we want to go the nationalist conservative. I'm a little more cynical about it because I, I do think that the, 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 grifting, um, the, <laughs> the grifting aspect of this is, uh, was really on display with the Tea Party, that you, you had certain grassroots elements that may have been genuinely concerned about the size of government, but eventually people... Um, found a way to monetize this, uh, organize this. Oh, yeah. uh, a lot of organizations that, that uh, took on the title of the Tea Party um, were very easily morphed into Trump because it was always about the grift. It was always about the con. And and you still see some of these folks around um, doing all of this. So let me just move on because I want to ask you, get, get, your, get your take on another story that's in the news today. And I, I have to admit that I have really mixed feelings about it. There's they're strong feelings, but they're mixed, if, if, if that makes any sense. Sure. I'm watching all of these United States senators, the Marco Rubios and the Joni Ernst, like Joni Ernst, for example, a senator from Iowa who, you know, not too long ago was suggesting that doctors are faking uh, coronavirus deaths to make money. And there she is. She's jumping in front of the line there and getting a vaccine. And they're all, you know, doing this on, on television while a lot of frontline workers have not gotten this vaccine, but politicians are, what is your take on this? Well, on, on the one hand, you know, there's, there's, there's good evidence that politicians, on no matter where they stand, by the way, in terms of what they publicly say about the coronavirus, politicians are super spreaders. They really are. I mean, you know, it's not just Joni Ernst, it's not just no. people who deny uh, or, or, or people who have, who have said things denying the extent of the coronavirus. It's like Gavin Newsom, right, going out and saying, well, everybody else has to lock down, but I'm going to, a, I'm going to a party at a wine bar, at a wine restaurant, uh, Napa Valley restaurant. Yeah. So Great. politicians and politicians, they're schmoozers and, and nothing is more important to them than getting together and, and, and shaking hands and, and talking to people, uh, uh, you know, face to face. And, uh, they are super spreaders. So on the one hand, I'm almost glad that they're getting this uh, vaccine. So because you maybe could contain some of the spread that way. Uh, but yeah, there is this this incredible uh, um, sort of I mean, the tragedy of this last year is we had a major public health emergency and everybody turned it into a, an ev- or not everybody, but a lot of people basically turned it into just another football in the culture wars. We actually had a public health culture war. And it's the most insane and, and, and destructive thing you could possibly have. And there were a lot of yeah. people who, who are responsible for feeding into that and, and going along with that and not standing up again, and at the very least not standing up against it. And now those people are lining up, oh, I'm going to get the vaccine first. And you kind of, yeah, I think you, I, I agree with your mixed feelings that you kind of want to say, no, you should be. You should well, be right. on, on, on the other hand, I would prefer that they did it than that they, you know, you know, drifted off into the anti-vax stuff because we're going to have a, a vax, uh, you know, a, an anti-vaxxer culture war next year as well. So I guess I'd rather have Joni Ernst be pro-vax than, than joining the crazy. But on the other hand, it's just the, you know, the, the, the way the system is, is rigged, <laughs> sort of the inequality yeah. and the inequity of it that does gall. And, well, you know, I, I linked to a story in my newsletter, just to, to mention this, that peace in the Washington Post just haunts the hell out of me. Um, and it, 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 it asked the question, um, you know, why Americans are numb to the staggering uh, coronavirus death toll. And it, it mentions that, you know, people, human beings basically will react to one starving child. But if you show them a picture of a thousand starving yeah. children, they kind of shut down that uh, this has been invisible. And we kind of shrug it up. But 400,000 deaths is is amazing. And the story's got a description of what it is like to die of coronavirus alone, um, you know, without your loved ones around you with no human touch. I mean, just this absolute nightmare. And we're getting close to 400,000 Americans dying this way. And to watch the people turning this into a joke or a political football is one of the great outrages of our time. I mean, the people who are raging against social distancing, who make a joke of some of the, 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 the you know, some of the, the rules and the you know, recommendations, including masks and everything. I mean, it, it, it is a real tragedy. 
And you know that some of these politicians have played on that. You have Ted Cruz out there saying that the coronavirus was going to disappear the day after the election. You know, I'm sorry, Ted, shut the fuck up. Um, Now, he's had the good judgment, at least for the time being, not to jump like head of the line and get the vaccine. But, you know, he's going to and he's going to get it in front of a lot of doctors and nurses in this country. Well, you know, the thing is that we're all used to the fact that uh, politics, there's a certain fakery in politics, right? That politicians will go out and say things. I mean, the uh, the old term is uh, bunkum, right? Uh, the origin yeah. of that, the term bunkum comes from Congress. It came from a congressman who represented Buncombe County down in like Kentucky or something like that. And he gave some polloviating speech on the floor of Congress that made no difference and was totally irrelevant to anything. And somebody said, why did you give that speech? And I said, well, I had to say something for Buncombe. And that's where bunkum came to refer to something that's totally yep. fake. And this is like, you know, 19th century. So this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, <laughs> so we're used to politicians being fake and posturing and all of that. And it, we kind of, you know, those of us in the business kind of get a little cynical about that. And was, of course, you know, uh, they they will say, say, you know, make all these very bold statements and, and strong statements. And then behind the scenes, they don't believe any of it. But when it's something that when it comes to an issue that is so much of a direct immediate life and death issue as this, as this where the the issue the, where the the consequences and you know the scientific truth and the consequences are so well established and clear cut that's when we sort of complacency about that it, it really makes you realize how serious it really is no it 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 it, it, it is serious and you know you're going back to your comment before about uh, donald trump's self-interest you know, if he was actually thinking about his self-interest, if he actually was thinking about running for president, he would have wrapped himself around this vaccine from the beginning. He would be talking about it. He'd be making public appearances about it. And the fact is that that he cannot bring himself to get out of his sulk. Um, we, we, we remember that in May, his approval ratings were going up. I think it was April or yeah. May. His approval ratings were going up because there's this rally around the flag effect. And if he had been, I'm going to be the president who led you boldly through this coronavirus by by telling you the truth and by uh, working on and touting on how I'm going to work on, and not just not just a vaccine, because the vaccine was it was always clear that it was going to take a while. But things like uh, contact tracing and and massive uh, large scale testing, all these things that were people were saying, you know, in March and April, we need to do this. Uh, they put um, uh, the the presidential son in law. Uh, uh, sure. Jared, they put Jared in charge of this little uh, task force to do all this. What a cluster. But they had a whole plan. And then the whole thing just was, it wasn't that they tried and failed to do it. They had a whole plan they put together. There's a great report about this a while back. They had a whole plan to do, you know, massive testing and and get all this online and make it available. And then the president lost interest and it was just dropped. And it never went anywhere. (laughs) President Los Angeles, I don't know whether you've seen this, but, uh, you know, th- how crazy our times are. The Geraldo Rivera has become the voice of uh, of reason on Fox News <laughs> that he's on basically saying, you people, it's over. This election is done. Um, you know, stop indulging this. He was actually on with Charlie Kirk, who's become just thoroughly embarrassing on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Geraldo Rivera is, is you, know, you know, flashing the reality sign, but, but, but feels the need to soften the blow by saying maybe we could induce Donald Trump to do something marginally gracious by naming the vaccine after Donald Trump, which is like one of the stupidest ideas in the world, but also shows this, 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 this instinct or this, this obsession with catering to Donald Trump's disordered personality, you know, it is that, you know, come on, Donald, you know, we'll give you a piece of candy, take you to the zoo. You know, if you, if you don't uh, call out the military, it's like, no, it's like the worst thing on earth you could do is to name this the Trump vaccine. If you want 70% of Americans to take it. So Geraldo, yeah. who's the voice of reason has to come up with this completely batshit stupid idea. Well, that's the, the, your problem. There is Geraldo as the voice of reason. That's that's right. just not going to going to work <laughs> as a whole. Um, but the you know that and that goes back to this issue of of what Republicans are doing with when Trump is is he's in this little bubble of this alternate reality where he won he really won the election. He won it. He won it hugely. He won it by a big margin, and it was stolen from him because of the voting machines or or what, whatever conspiracy theories he's picking up from these people, and. Uh, the thing about most Republicans, though, I think it's very clear to me, they actually, they're desperate for him to be gone. They want him to be gone. They, yes. they cannot wait. They're counting not just the days, they're counting the hours 
before he's out of office that they don't have to do this. They don't have to humiliate themselves all the time. But they have so much of the sort of battered woman syndrome, right? That they're right. So, the one time they hate him, but the other time they're deathly afraid of him and they're deathly afraid of this fanatical faction of the right that he commands uh, that will come and uh, uh, the flying monkeys, as we keep calling them, that they they desperately want him to be gone, but they won't do a single thing to make it happen. Yeah, I know. I, I think that's exactly where we're at. And they're just sort of hoping that he will go away. But of course, that's what they hoped throughout uh, 2015 and 2016. And you think nothing has changed there. Um, I fear you are right. I hope you are. So, my, my biggest concern is this. I, I was talking a while back to George Will, and he said, well, he has a, you know, for a guy who describes himself as being pessimistic, he had a very optimistic take, which is uh, that well, you know, they have these very strong conservative institutions, all these you know think tanks and all these writers and all these thinkers. And after Trump is gone and fades from the scene, they will reassert themselves and will the right go back to where it traditionally has been. And I think a lot of people are depending on that. They're counting on that. That mm. after this is all over, the traditional right as we remember it from the from the Reagan era, you know, the Reagan right is going to come back. Yeah, I think that's and unlikely. I'm just not optimistic about that. Yeah. I'm not really sure. I think that there was you know, that there's this long political alignment that was lasted for about 70 years. I'm not sure that political alignment is all just going to heal itself back together. I, I, I can think of only a handful of think tanks that have not utterly and thoroughly disgraced themselves over the last four years and whose credibility has been shredded. I will say, though, that, that if you're looking for green shoots in terms of like institutional uh, strength, um, I think by the time this is over, we'll look back and say, hey, you know what? The military um, actually performed well and was a bulwark of democracy. Uh, the courts, uh, surprisingly, mm -hmm. were you know uh, very, very strong on this. Uh, we're getting a lesson in what a conservative ju judge, conservative justice actually did. So the courts... The military, one hopes that Congress would do it. Uh, local uh, officials, local state officials, legislators did not go along with all of this. I think that's really extraordinary that there's not a single judge in this country that is going along with Trump's um, attempt to overturn this election. Not a single legislature has gone along with this. Not a single governor, not a single secretary of state, nowhere has, you know. So, I mean, that's that's a positive sign, right? It's the Republican election officials who are the heroes here. But see, here's my they concern, are. though, is those people were basically selected in the pre-Trump era. Right. And what is it going to look like when it comes time, again, to appoint a election, a, you know, state and local level election officials? When it comes time to appoint or elect those people in the next four years, what's going to happen? Who's going to be engaged on that? What if the QAnon people and the, you know, the stolen election conspiracy theory people what if they're the ones who are engaged and on target in, in looking at these, well, you know, these local decisions? So we, we could be seeing the momentum of the past of the Republican Party in what happened in this election. And, and who knows what mischief will be caused in the future if people are actually engaged. And, and if there's a conspiracy theory group that is really motivated to get out and influence these, uh, the, the local elections for, or, or, and, or appointments for uh, uh, election officials. No, this is a very, very good point. Because just imagine the discussion we would be having now if you had one of those uh, Trumpian officials, say, who had been instead of Mr. Raffensperger in uh, Georgia, right. if it had been a QAnon guy in Georgia, or imagine if the governor of uh, Arizona was uh, Kelly Ward rather than Doug Ducey, we'd be having a very, very different discussion now. Robert Trisinski, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And, and because uh, Donald Trump is still president, we can still say Merry Christmas. So I hope you <laughs> and your family have a great, have a, have a great Christmas in the holiday season. Merry Christmas to you too. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.